even the word wolf has a sort of a, uh, a rapacious connotation. It's, it, there's a suggestion in the word itself in the English language that, it, that, that wolf, I mean, after all, wolfish. You know, there's, there's something about appetites that are, unin, that, that are uninhibited that we associate with wolves. So that's clearly there in the pioneering response of people from a European background to wild areas in North America that were being settled when there was encounters with wolves. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Hello, and thanks for turning back into the American War on Wolves. This is episode two in our four-part series. In the first episode, we shared some insights into wolf behavior and sociology in an effort to lay a foundation for a better understanding of wolves, their day-to-day lives, and how they interact with the environment. That foundation will make what we learned in episodes two through four a bit more contextualized, so if you haven't listened to episode one, please go ahead and do so. Before we get started, I also want to remind everyone, please, please, please visit saveourwolves.org. That's saveourwolves.org and sign the petitions that are going to state and federal policymakers to protect the species and slow down the state-by-state killing spree happening right now. Wolves need your help. Anyone can sign a digital petition. Please, please, please go support. And a special shout out that this is our 50th episode of the Animalia podcast. Thank you to everyone who has supported us, and a big thanks to Annalie, Jose, Annalise, and Abby who have made this possible. We have tons of great episodes covering such a wide range of issues and topics all around the world, so please go and check out some of our past stuff. All right, let's get into episode two. In this episode, we're going to learn about the historical extermination of wolves in the United States from the mid-19th century up through the end of the 20th century. This episode's going to be a bit of a history lesson. One person you'll hear from a lot is Michael Robinson, a historian and author of Predatory Bureaucracy a fantastic book chronicling the war on wild predators here in the United States dating back to those mid-1800s. It's his book and our conversations that really shaped this entire episode, so a big, big thanks to Michael. Throughout this episode, I'll be referencing Robinson's book a lot, and you'll be hearing from him too. There no doubt exists a cultural animosity towards wolves. And while this animosity has roots that date much further back to the United States— For the purpose of this series, we're going to understand how they really took shape and became solidified here, starting with the settlement of the West. Now, bear in mind that Western settlers thought of it as their duty and obligation to move, to change the West, to better utilize it in growing food and building settlements and supporting their growing nation and progress as they defined it. This is an important notion we're going to revisit throughout this episode, that progress is relative and how one group of people define it can be much different from another group. For the Western settlers, the natural world was seen as one that would endure. They saw resources as vast and inexhaustible at the time. And when obstacles stood in the way, such as wolves and other predators, well, they needed to be managed and moved out of the way, again in the name of progress. Born out of this was a sense of rivalry, a sense of animosity towards wild predators. Over time, it became part of culture to fear and loathe wolves. Wolves were seen as constant mega-threats to livestock in particular. And it's absolutely true. Wolves have killed livestock and will kill livestock if given the chance. But what is inaccurate is the volume to which you know they supposedly do it, and that there are plenty 
of methodologies and ways to prevent conflict outside of killing them. We learned about this a little bit in episode one. And this festered year after year, decade after decade, to the point, as Michael shares, where we really use the word wolfish to describe insatiable behavior. Well, clearly the, the animosity towards wolves has deep cultural roots that go back hundreds and arguably thousands of years in our species. And even the word wolf has a sort of a, uh, a rapacious connotation. It's, it, there's a suggestion in the word itself in the English language that it, that, that wolf, I mean, after all, wolfish, you know, there's, there's something about appetites that are, unin, that, that are uninhibited that we associate with wolves. So that's clearly there in the pioneering response of people from a European background to wild areas in North America that were being settled when there was encounters with wolves. But I tend to differ from some other people who've looked at this, who maybe see that as a dominant uh, motif in the, in the, you know, American experience with wolves. I don't think that it necessarily was dominant. I think there was a, you know, there was a quite understandable sense that the natural world was vast and inexhaustible. And it wasn't just a sense. This was, this was written in very various philosophical texts and, and pop, even popular texts, a sense that its bounty was there for the grabbing, for those who could grab fast enough, a sense that any obstacles needed to be pushed away because there was both a, a practical and a moral right to get what we deserved. And insofar as wolves occasionally were an obstacle, they were treated that way, but I don't. I really don't think that they were uniquely treated that way. There was a sense, not just of let's get what we can and say the bison slaughter as as visitors and pioneers traveled west, but but also a sense of an almost a giddy attraction to killing for the entertainment value of it. And maybe that's not so unfamiliar in the world we inhabit today, but there's a sense that, you know, I have a gun, there's something moving. Why not? How did wolves become such a villain in the minds of so many Americans? <laughs> Let's travel back in time to mid 19th century. Some five decades after Lewis and Clark famously made their way from St. Louis up through the Rockies and into the modern-day Oregon coast. Colonial Americans are moving west. Many of the lands from the Louisiana Purchase are yet to be divided into state lines, stretching from modern-day Oklahoma up through Montana. Over the next 25 years, the majority of the western United States will more or less take the shape of what we know today. The colonization efforts of the west presented different challenges to those in the east. As an example, the Great Plains brought much more arid land and high winds. It's important to remember that life for settlers moving west was neither simple nor easy. That's not to excuse the awful things they did to those occupying it, particularly Native Americans. But we mention this to make it clear that these were not people living comfortably and just taking land for the joy of it. They were trying to survive, and in their minds doing so in the name of progress, again, as they understood and defined it. People went 
West or, you know, started trying to raise cattle in a place like West Texas in the 1860s because it was an opportunity. I mean, I, I look at diaries from people who are grew up on farms in a place like Indiana or Ohio, and they can move here and they have a potential to make money. But I think people also always kind of rationalize what they're doing or make sense of it through the tools they have. And there was a widespread belief in America among uh, people, you know, essentially United States citizens, that the spread of ranching and the spread of the expansion of United States authority was part of a kind of divinely ordained, so a, a process kind of supported by God, and a pro- process of improving the world and, and North America. And the way I know that both are relevant is, you know, for a lot of these people you talk about, life actually was quite difficult for them. You know, just because they're involved in, in, in what is a pretty violent and terrible process doesn't mean it was like easy or they were getting a lot out of it. You know, I read the diary of this woman, Susan Newcomb, in the book, who's living in West Texas in the 1860s, 1870s, constantly facing death, barely scraping by. There are real opportunities, but, but you know, it's, it's the fact that she stayed is a sign that there's something going on there, not just it's like an easy life. And I think then when you read her diary, how she makes sense of it, how she she kind of hopes that God will help civilize what she calls a wild and destitute country, how she identifies herself on in the idea of progress, I think reveals that kind of both are at play. So I would never discount economic interest because I think that's at the core. But the fact that people were so determined and just the fact of how they made sense of and justified it to other people, I think that pro- that belief in progress is really important there. That was Josh Specht, who you'll hear from in this episode as well. Josh is a professor at the University of Notre Dame and author of Red Meat Republic, another highly recommended read about how the beef industry came to dominate the West and with it, the whole of the U.S. food system. We'll link to that in the notes too. There were two main obstacles that stood in the way of Western settlers, Native Americans and wild predators. In so many ways, these two are tragically linked together on the receiving end of a systematic effort of exploitation and annihilation. Do you, do you think there are parallels to that mindset back then with wolves to the mindset we had also towards Native people in this country? Well, the ethos is really almost identical, if not exactly identical. I mean, it's summed up in the term manifest destiny, which was a real animating force in people in the culture and in people's individual attitudes towards, <clears throat> towards their own lives as they, as they became part of the, the push westward. And so clearly, you know, the, the exploitative, cruel, and dehumanizing the way that our society and individuals in our society treated the, the, um, People who lived here for, for hundreds and, and many thousands of years is, is clearly linked to the, the exploitative and, and cruel and you know, way that, that wildlife was treated. And yeah, there's definitely, definitely a common link in, in cultural attitude. To stand for wolves is to stand for native peoples and vice versa. This is just one example of so many ways in how conservation, climate, and social justice are all linked together. Not in the form of a Venn diagram with concentric circles, but as if you intertwine three different slinkies in a way that even the most determined person can never unravel. The Westerners found the need to eliminate bison. They saw these big, burly beasts as an inefficient form of food that required too much effort to hunt down and control, preferred instead to replace them with cattle, a domesticated food source that would flourish on the vast grazing lands of the West. There was an additional motive here as well as pointed out in Robinson's book. 
To quote it, military strategists understood that killing off bison would destroy the basis for Native American society. Some Native Americans, with tragic short-sightedness, participated in the slaughter and sold or traded the pelts. What he's saying here is that Western settlers not only saw eliminating bison as a way to move in cattle, but also as a way to cripple a key part of Native American society and make them dependent on Western settlers for food. As Josh pointed out in our chat, the way the land in the West was being utilized was seen as wasteful by settlers, given the economic upside it offered in their minds. I think the key thing to understand for how, I guess, these these early ranchers and, and ranchers at the time in general, they had a way of making their economic interests and their kind of ideology or their views about progress overlap. And I think the key there was they believed that land being used by Native peoples as it was in the 19th century, was being wasted, right? That that merely hunting animals like the bison or not farming or ranching a domesticated animal, that that was waste and they were putting land to a productive use. And so at the same time, there were both these factors. It's the idea that your individual interests and the kind of progress or, or higher goals actually map onto each other ends up being very important. And that's kind of the key to that story. Another major piece of the puzzle were the railroads. Now, railroads accelerated demand for beef in a huge way, allowing it to be transported back to the heavily populated eastern states, which Western settlers were happy to fulfill, providing the funds they needed to build out their own towns and fortify their lives. This spike in demand for beef came with a cost. Essentially, every wild animal that stood in the way. Bison were not the only ungulates that were gunned down to create room for livestock agriculture. So too were deer and bighorn sheep. Well, that left wild predators as a major thorn in the side of Western settlers, particularly wolves. With their traditional food sources being quickly eliminated and replaced with slower, easier prey in the form of cattle, well, wolves naturally turned to preying on livestock. If you're talking about 150 years ago or so, the the animals that wolves preyed on, bison, elk, deer, to some extent, even bighorn sheep, the pronghorn, the, you know, in, in northern areas, moose, these animals were being eliminated essentially in the blink of an eye historically by unrestrained market hunting. We know the fate of bison that they went extinct over the vast majority of the range in, in the United States as well as in Canada and Mexico because, of, because they were simply gunned down. But a lot of people don't realize the same thing happened with elk. Elk were eliminated from almost everywhere in the Western United States. We're brought down to terribly low numbers and were reintroduced later, and that's why elk are relatively common today. Deer were close to extinction in significant parts of the Western United States as well. Bighorn sheep, pronghorn, and in the absence of their natural prey, wolves did prey almost exclusively on livestock. As we move into the 1870s and 1880s, a state-by-state bounty system took shape, designed to eliminate wild predators. Wolves, coyotes, bears, bobcats, and mountain lions all became targets. Ranchers and hunters were financially rewarded for every kill they made and could make even more money by selling those pelts. Now think about it for a second. If you're a livestock owner in 1880, struggling to get by and competing with every other rancher in the area year in and year out, and wolves were killing some of your assets, and you could eliminate that threat and get paid for doing so, or hire a bounty hunter to do it for you, now how could you resist that? I paint this picture not to defend these actions. We know now how devastating 
this extermination system would become to predators and their ecosystems and how much it would shape cultural hatred of wolves that still persists today. I paint it to help you understand why it is people made the decisions they did back then. Now, this is not to say there were no forms of environmental conservation efforts back in the late 19th century. There was actually a big push happening towards preserving forests and worries about deforestation, leading to the formation of Yellowstone National Park in 1872. There just weren't conservation efforts pointed at wild predators, such as wolves, because there really was no framework back then for evaluating what we know today. You know, one thing to look at is the conservation movement was, you know, one way to look at it was, is it was a series of understandings of various threats to various manifestations of nature. I mean, in the 1870s and 80s, there was vast concern about deforestation mm-hmm. uh, in the, you know, and in the 1860s, there was concern of, about the gunning down of, of bison. And, you know, in the 1890s, the concerns about, about loss of forests intensified and led to national forests being, being designated and authority being, being granted for national forests to be designated. So all during the late 19th century, there were issues of conservation concern. And the fact that predators were not the focus of conservation concern in large part reflects that, you know, losses of predators wasn't really accelerating in, yeah, I mean, you could take any decade of the late 19th century or the yeah second half of the 19th century, maybe come up with a slightly different assessment of it, but you know, forests were disappearing really fast. That was mm-hmm. evident to everybody. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of animals getting shot, but it wasn't clear to anybody there's more animals of this time getting shot versus that kind and th- those kind getting poisoned. It's like, there's just a lot of, you know, there wasn't the framework that we have today for evaluating what was going wrong in nature wasn't really available to people then. Things really started to shift when the disparate bounty program became an organized systemic extermination system. Once ranchers figured out how to work together and use government to their advantage. When ranchers learned to band together, they learned to use government effectively in order to solve these problems that they as individuals faced. And, and far more than just the, the few that I listed. I mean, the, the issues of water, how to get water in dry areas to where it could irrigate grass for, for livestock. And they found that government was a, was a good answer and that ultimately the combination of working with government and having government do their work for them with, of course, the larger tax-paying authority of government and the ability to enter a global economic system. Because livestock, you know, even, even in the 19th century, livestock grown in the Western United States were often owned, particularly later in the, in the 19th century, owned not just by individuals, but by large and sometimes absentee corporations, some of them that were actually centered in England and and Ireland. And so very quickly, livestock became part of an international economic system, you know, meat, and as well as the animals that seemingly were in competition and probably were in competition with the domestic animals brought to the West. Those animals had a price on their head as well, bison, could be rendered, it could be, you know, after gunned down, they could be skinned and the skins had a, a market value. So the combination of government 
to enhance the ability of individual livestock owners to essentially solve what they saw as their, their, their limitations and their challenges <clears throat> with being part of a global economic system that really didn't, didn't have any kind of regard for any particular place and, for, and certainly not for its ecological integrity, as we might say, very much with, in the retrospect, almost 200, 150 years later, whatever the case may be. That combination meant that natural ecosystems had both the pressure of the inexorable pressure of global economies and the, the force of government action backed up by a lot of money, taxpayer money, essentially arrayed against the way they had been functioning. Those ecosystems became were transformed. And let's not beat around the bush here. Total and complete extermination was indeed the target of so many. Again, from Robinson's book, A.J. Bothwell, a Wyoming cattleman, said the following, only such a coordinated effort would make the warfare against wolves a persistent and effective movement in the West until the race is finally and completely exterminated. There's no mincing these words. That rhetoric was sadly shared by so many others. Even more disturbing were the variety of methods used to kill wolves and other predators. A combination of poison, snaring, trapping, and other brutal methodologies I'm going to spare you all the gruesome details of. Hunters quickly learned the emotional and social intelligence of wolves and used it against them. A common tactic to bait adult wolves was to kidnap pups from the den, make them suffer and cry out to the pack for help as a way to lure in the more elusive and experienced alphas. And if you're wondering why someone will put any creature through that amount of pain and be okay with it, well, <laughs> there's a quote from Robinson's book that really stood out to me from a man named Albert K. Fisher, who was a senior member of the U.S. Biological Survey. In 1922, Fisher wrote, that savages and illiterate men suffer less from pain than those with high-strung mental development. He argued that lower forms of animal life likewise feel little pain from injuries, and that even mammals and traps do not suffer unduly. Literally, this man, who is an important figure in the U.S. Biological Survey, the organization that we'll find out would become the Fish and Wildlife Service, was published as saying, Animals and people with how he defined lower intelligence don't actually feel pain the way higher intelligent beings do. It's absurd and it shows his complete lack of understanding of what a nervous system is. So who was doing the hunting and how was it getting so organized? It started with the U.S. Forestry Service, who in a way worked favor from ranchers for managing predators in exchange for them allowing more government intervention in agriculture. Even more momentum for federally organized extermination came from the U.S. Biological Survey, which would later become the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. There were many, there were many important characters that shaped this organization, but nobody stood out to me in Robinson's book quite like Stanley P. Young. Well, Stanley Young is one of the most influential people who worked uh, for the federal government in the agency that, as you say, was called the Bureau of Biological Survey then but has, has become the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service today, split into two agencies, USDA Wildlife Services and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I think that, you know, Young was part, was part of the agency at a formative, during a formative era and helped transform it into a very effective predator extermination and then <coughs> predator suppression agency. 
And uh, you know, predators are still gone. Wolves are still gone from the vast majority of the American West, as are grizzly bears, which were also largely removed by the by the biological survey, although also clearly by individuals. And and you know, ecosystems have been trans transformed, have been simplified. A lot of species have been lost, and that is that is in part the legacy of federal wildlife policy that Stanley Young was instrumental in shaping. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were clearly other people shaping that. I told Michael in our chat that Young felt like Darth Vader to me, this menacing, powerful villain who knew how to organize and manipulate people and systems to carry out his will. But Michael reminded me that we have to always evaluate these historical figures in the context of the times they lived in. I tried to paint Stanley Young, you know, in... I try to paint him as a full human being and, uh, you know, he, he was very consequential, but as I said before, he was also a man of his times. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that it raises the obvious historiographical question about how, how accountable and in what ways do we, do we judge people from other epochs? And obviously that's very, a very current question Mm -hmm. in regard to race and, and exploitation of our fellow human beings but it's also in, entailed in, in your questioning, you know, and you're asking me to render a judgment on Stanley Young. Still, Stanley P. Young, Ding Darling, Ira Gabrielson, and many other prominent figures in the U.S. Biological Survey will leave a lasting legacy that would be impossible to describe as anything but anti-wolf. The Biological Survey became a powerful machine. Part of the mastermind of Stanley Young was knowing how to market how to form alliances with other government agencies, and how to use the media. He could relate to ranchers and politicians alike. He was articulate and charismatic. When some resistance toward predator extermination finally started to organize via the creation of the American Society of Mammalogists in 1918, well, the U.S. Biological Survey just changed their tune accordingly. In order to keep outspoken scientists at bay, they abandoned terms like extermination in favor of management a framework that is still used today by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Terminology changed, strategy shifted, but the target results remained. Wolves needed to go. There were plenty of brave people that stood out against this drive to eradicate wild predators, such as Rosalie Edge, an incredible woman I learned from Robinson's book who stood out against her own peers in the National Audubon Society for being complacent and not doing enough. I'm going to link to actually her Wikipedia and some information about her in the podcast notes as well, because she is awesome. Still, through extensive relationships on Capitol Hill, from Congress up through the presidency, the U.S. Biological Survey was a force that took some blows and lost some battles here and there, but by and large, kept winning the war against wolves. As an example of this, I asked Michael about FDR and his Civilian Climate Corps and whether or not this, alongside growing pro-wolf opposition, provided momentum to protect wild predators. But it seems the anti-wolf machinery, powered by that U.S. biological survey, alongside the livestock industry, was just too strong. You know, certain public lands and, and forests and national parks, it wasn't on the predatory side. It seems like they, even under FDR and the CCC, they were still leaning on the biological survey to manage wildlife. Is that correct? Yes. In the 1920s, in particular, the American Society of Mammalogists, a scientific body, became very concerned as they learned about the federal government's predator extermination program and its rodent extermination program, which was which was underway as well. 
And the American Society of Mammalogists organized amongst themselves and uh, more broadly in the scientific community and they passed resolutions and they remonstrated with their colleagues and sometimes their friends who worked for the US government for the Bureau of Biological Survey. Ultimately, they members of the American Society of Mammalogists testified in Congress against a, a broader and as it turns out permanent authorization for funding for, for the purpose of killing wild animals, which is unfortunately the American Society of Mammalogists and their scientific brethren and a, and a few animal lovers didn't have the, the political clout of the livestock industry then or seemingly now either. But, you know, there was, you know, well before the New Deal came, came about, there was a movement within the scientific community and a little bit beyond it with individuals such as Rosalie Edge, who, who was one of the leaders of an organization called the Emergency Conservation Committee. Mm-hmm. She's fascinating, and, by the way. I had never yeah. heard of that character of, of her, and now I wanna, I wanna like learn more about her. What what a what an interesting and and amazing woman. Yes. Actually, standing up against the the National Audubon Society and just the 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 strength and to do that, she's I I, I really enjoy learning about her from your book. Oh well, thank you. Um, yeah, I was happy to be able to high, highlight her contribution and her sensibilities. And there's a, a book that I actually have on my I have on my bookshelf just published a few years ago, given to me as a gift, but I had not yet read. It's a biography of her, so it came oh, out yes. after my book. It's called A Hawk of Mercy. So anyway, I look forward to reading that one of these days, but in any event, and you may, you may get to it before I do for all I know. Yeah. There, so th- there was a movement to, to rein in uh, the excesses of the federal predator extermination program and even to abolish it from, you know, the science, the scientists sought to rein it in. Rosalie Edge and her cohorts sought to abolish that program. They were not successful, but it's really, it really attests to the the very robust political operation that the livestock industry and and just its its political chops that the livestock industry had then and now, and just a very influential in industry, and obviously has has done a lot of damage and continues to do a lot of damage to the public lands. In the early to mid 1900s, there was simply too much power in the greatest economic engine of them all, the U.S. livestock industry. Beef became the cultural icon of the American dinner plate. Beef demanded lots of livestock. Livestock demanded lots of grazing land. Expansive grazing land demanded predator management. Wolves never stood a chance. The collective lobbying force of the livestock industry didn't just stop at ranchers and retailers. As Josh Speck points out in his book, beef processors were as instrumental as railroads themselves. Centralizing production of beef helped drive down prices. Low-priced food was pivotal to the American working class and the birth of the American middle class. Yeah. I mean, that's how I think about it. You know, some of these processes we were just talking about are very much being driven by ranchers, by policymakers. But when we think of the kind of industrial or post-industrial food system in which we live, I think you have to look at food processors. And so, you know, starting in, in the late 1800s, a set of four companies headquartered in Chicago essentially take over and create a national market for beef and then global market for beef. And since then, there have been some changes in the actors, but there's usually between four and six key companies that kind of dominate this whole story. And, you know, one of the reasons they're they're so key in that in driving this is because they coordinate 
the purchasing from lots of small producers of ranchers and then the distribution to lots of small separate consumers all over the world. And so they kind of create the, the factories and the ways of, of distribution and the, and the labor modes that make that possible. But they also start to, to mobilize politically in pushing this world. So I, I try to get people to get away from thinking it's natural that big companies dominate this story or that we have centralization of production. For example, in, in the, in the, around 1900, in the decades before and a little bit after, all sorts of communities tried to pass laws saying, oh, our food should be locally raised or locally inspected or regionally at most. But meatpacking companies go around and they challenge these things legally and convince judges and lawmakers that it would be more efficient and therefore cheaper to have things centrally produced. And, and, and by the way, there is a lot of logic to that argument. It just has some of these very troubling consequences. And so, yeah, I view them as kind of driving this, this process as well as justifying it. And the justification, as you, as you noted, becomes price, right? The interest of consumers and low price justifies anything else, whether it's consequences for animals, consequences for indigenous peoples, whether consequences for workers or environments. And price becomes the justification. You might ask, were there alternative ways to protecting livestock from predators outside of massacring them? Well, sure, there always have been. From low-tech methods dating back hundreds of years, such as shepherds, to high-tech methods available today, such as noise triggers. But as Michael points out, everything needs to be evaluated for the time period it took place in, the information available, and with an understanding that progress means different things to different people. Again, the theme we keep repeating here. This came up when I asked Michael about a specific section in his book. All right, so it's, it's in the chapter of a certain faction of, of the natives. And I'll just read it out loud and I'll tell you why it stood out to me. So it says, the, the crashing predator populations allowed sheep ranchers a luxury already enjoyed by cattle ranchers. Quote, it is now possible to allow sheep to go unattended for days and not have a single sheep lost by predatory animals in the Western Slope unit, wrote Crawford in his fiscal year 1919 annual report. He continued, quote, this is in itself very gratifying to sheepmen who formerly were obliged to keep a vigilant watch on flocks, end quote. The reason that stood out to me was it, it messaged to me that there was, like, even back then, this, like, potential, like, awareness that there was ways to protect livestock without having to get rid of wolves, but it was just easier to get rid of wolves. And, you know, is that, is that fair to, to, to take that out of that passage? Like, was that, was that even back then, you know, was that a thing where like, you know, the survey and, and those and the ranchers and those that knew, knew there were potential ways to protect livestock without getting rid of wolves, but it was just easier to get rid of wolves and kind of let the livestock roam unattended? Yes, and it was certainly, it was, the alternative may have been almost unthinkable to an owner of livestock, you know, in, in a, Western, a Western state, given the philosophy of, you know, of essentially of progress being represented by, by turning parts of nature into things for human use and being able to, to remunerate that almost as a, as a token of progress by selling the things that you're taking out of nature. And so the notion that you would want to somehow, that it would be preferable to do the things that were necessary to keep parts of nature intact, it's like, it just runs counter to, to the era of the times 
among the people who are engaged in that type of business. And here we are back again at this notion of a very biased view of progress. The cultural influencers of the times did not view any notion of keeping in balance with nature as a necessary step in their economic goals. The only priority was securing and feeding their communities of growth. This came up in my chat with Josh as well. He pointed out that because the demand for goods was so far removed from the source of supply, something we see in nearly every industry and business today, there should be little to no expectations that those driving demand are at all concerned or even knowledgeable about what's happening at the source. And that's a good segue to my next question. It seems that, and I might be too harsh in framing it this way, that the you know three players, uh, player one being animals themselves, both both the bison and the cattle, another player being the indigenous people, and then another player being just the natural world and the natural ecosystem, were kind of, I mean, it's almost hard not to conclude that they were seen as commodities and in, 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 in the way a widget is. Is that a fair characterization of how the cattle beef industry overall looked at those three players as these are just commodities that can be traded and used, that there is not a kind of aspect of sentience and, you know, sort of just integrity and autonomy that these three parties have and should have a seat at the table, that they they are pawns in a way in our wheel of progress. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, I'll expand on that a bit, but I, I, I kind of like how you put that and that idea of a wheel of progress is interesting. What I would say is, you know, part of justifying what was happening, namely taking land from native peoples, imprisoning native peoples, etc. Part of justifying that was denying their place as meaningful political actors, right? So, so you know, you might say that people like the Comanche or the Kiowa have an enormously complicated political structure involving direct relations, traditional agreements, etc. But in the telling of how the violence of, say, the late 19th century happens, they're kind of cast as criminals, right? So, so I, talk, I, I talk a bit in my work about how moments that to the Comanche or Kiowa looked like war, the United States government says these are criminals. And part of that is a strategy for delegitimating what those people are up to. Now, the commodity point more generally does hold, though, I would say, so there's an idea, right, that, that ecosystems are to be converted into places of profit and sites of extraction for a broader market, for selling animals, meat, or byproducts in a place like Chicago or New York or even London. Now, I would say that is connected to broader processes. So that is very much an economic question. People in the United States military or government officials, they viewed that as part of that civilized, quote unquote, civilizing process, right? So, you know, I have a Treasury Department official in the 1880s who refers to cattle raising as, in his words, the most efficient instrumentality for solving the Indian question or problem. Those are his words, right? So, so first, the commodification serves a higher good. But yeah, basically, it is about producing things for the market. And that, of course, independent to political consequences, creates enormous risk for environmental or ecological destruction. Because as soon as you're depending on a, on a, on a particular place in Texas or you know, anywhere on the plains to feed consumers across the United States or in Europe, well, that demand is so high that the risk of ecological destruction is massive. And the people who are bearing the consequences are very far away from the people who are creating the demand. And so that I think you're right about the commodity and has very far-reaching consequences. The U.S. Biological Survey 
would become the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1939. Although, just as Stanley Young swapped the word extermination for management, the name change was nothing material. The eradication of wolves and coyotes in particular would continue for decades and decades. The Fish and Wildlife Service simply modernized the methodology, adapted to the times, advanced poisoning tactics, launched aerial hunts, and continued to eliminate wolves one by one. Okay, so we need something positive because so far this has been a pretty grim picture I've been painting. So let's talk about Aldo Leopold. He is a hero worth mentioning, one whose legacy and work would lead to the formation of the Endangered Species Act in 1973. He is a fascinating figure who actually started his career in the Forest Service, hunting down wolves and other predators as he was taught to do. However, as he grew older, he would reflect a great deal and realize just how important predators are to wild ecosystems. Michael, share with me his thoughts on Leopold's legacy. Well, clearly his conservation philosophy is, is one that increasingly inspires a lot of people in today's world and, you know, and that is being seen as increasingly urgent as we see the world spiral out of balance. We're seeing not just the, the wisdom, but the, the urgent necessity of the, the kind of things that Aldo Leopold pointed to and the conclusions that he drew. And we have specific laws that reflect the ethic that he that he articulated the endangered species act for example the the opening lines or at least of the purposes of the act and in one of the the first words of the endangered species act are the purposes of this act are to conserve the ecosystems upon which endangered species depend and threatened species depend and then it goes on to enumerate two other purposes including to to set up an effective program for the conservation of such, such species. But, you know, clearly that is very much a result and there's a direct legacy even in, in, in one of the individuals from, from President Nixon's administration who helped craft the law, Russell Train, who was familiar with Aldo Leopold's writing. And, and you know, so there's, there's uh, you know, his legacy is not just in people's attitudes, but in the law that's, that's done extraordinary conservation value and has saved so many species from extinction and has indeed done a significant amount to conserve the ecosystems upon which endangered species depend. That's part of Aldo Leopold's legacy. And the Wilderness Act, uh, which was passed nine years before the Endangered Species Act, is also part of Aldo Leopold's legacy. And he, you know, obviously his writings were very much, you know, he, he celebrated roadless areas he got the Forest Service to designate what is today the Gila Wilderness and the Aldo Leopold Wilderness as, as at the time they were called uh, primitive areas, the Gila Primitive Area, 40 years before the Wilderness Act was passed in 1964. In 1924, thanks to Aldo Leopold's advocacy within the agency that he, he worked in, the Forest Service, he, he got those areas set aside. And then the, also the flat tops wilderness today of today's that's its name today obviously it was called a primitive area back then in northwestern Colorado as well and additional areas that, that got conserved before the Wilderness Act and then you know the Wilderness Act was again just you know part part of Leopold's intellectual legacy that that is protecting tens of millions of acres of land today mm. Uh, so, so those are some of the legacies that Aldo Leopold lives, uh, has left us with. And there's also more complex 
legacies involving his his advocacy for a land ethic that he, that encompasses private land and i think there are a significant number of private landowners who are you know maybe maybe many of them haven't even read leopold's writings but that has that has infused down into the influences that they you know they take care that that, that influences how they do land management on private lands there's a great segment from robinson's book i want to share it reads quote in 1944 toward the end of his life leopold claimed that when he shot an arizona wolf pack back in 1909 and saw a fierce green fire dying in the mother wolf's eye he had awakened to something new something known only to her and to the mountain everyone i've spoke to in researching the series that has had the privilege of observing wolves in the wild has shared a similar spiritual moment in their time with wolves. I too was lucky enough to experience that myself back in May, thanks to Rick McIntyre, who you heard from episode one, up at Yellowstone. It's hard to imagine anyone wanting to hurt these animals, but again, we must be careful not to judge historical actions through the lens and information we have today, as we lose sight of why they'd happened in the first place. If we lose sight of that, we fail to learn from it and we risk missing the boat and getting a large enough number of people today aligned not to repeat those same mistakes. The Endangered Species Act of 1973 was significant. It was written into law a year after President Nixon banned the use of poisons of predatory control. And this was progress. From that point forward, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was obligated to hold up the Endangered Species Act and protect those that fell under its decree, including wolves. Yet, when it came to wolves... Politics, lack of resources, and, and the gigantic machine that is the livestock and broader agriculture industry made it a bit of a toothless bill in the decades to follow. It seems like all they do is manage wildlife for the purpose of commercial interest. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, since the 1973 passage of the Endangered Species Act, has a statutory and, and I would, of course, argue a moral responsibility to save endangered wildlife from extinction. And in some cases, they're doing a a good job at it. They're hampered by lack of resources, and they're hampered by political interference because in so many cases, the animals and even plants that are on the the brink of extinction are, are in that plight because their habitat has been exploited by powerful commercial interests. And, and so in order to save them, sometimes these interests, you know, are not able to exploit the habitat the way they had previously or the way they had, had intended in remaining habitat. Sometimes habitat has to be restored and animals have to be put back. That's a perennial problem. Thankfully, the Endangered Species Act is a very powerful law that at least in portions of the decision-making and authorities that the Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to exercise, the, the, the act calls for the agency to rely on science. And that's very important. And in other cases, they have loopholes that enable them essentially to bypass science, and that can be very problematic. The situation with the agency's responsibility and implementation of its responsibilities with, with regard to wolves and, and other predators as well is complicated by the essentially essentially century-long history of the Fish and Wildlife Service in its various iterations and incarnations serving as an agricultural service agency. 
and working directly to exterminate wolves and, and very explicitly so, at least in the beginnings of its tenure. And so there is a, a bit of a, almost a lingering cultural legacy in that regard that coupled with the, the political pressure on the Fish and Wildlife Service and sometimes also coupled with the lack of resources that they, that they are, are dealing with very much complicates their implementation and has slowed in some cases retarded their ability to recover endangered wolves that they originally were responsible for bringing to the brink of extinction. In the next episode focusing on reintroduction, we're going to dive deeper into the failings of the Fish and Wildlife Service and efforts to strengthen Mexican gray wolf populations in the U.S. Southwest. It should come as no surprise, however, when you look back at the organization's history, starting with the U.S. Biological Survey, and how beholden it had been to the needs of ranchers and farmers above all other priorities. As a result, the Fish and Wildlife Service has lost many lawsuits over its management of wolves and other predator species. But that status quo dating back to the 1973 Endangered Species Act just seems to continue. As a result, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has lost many lawsuits and its management of wolves and other predatory species. The Endangered Species Act became a law in 1973, four years after Stanley Young died. And yet clearly the Fish and Wildlife Service you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's consistently losing lawsuits over its management and recovery of wolves, as well as other endangered species. And it's losing them to conservationists, such as the Center for Biological Diversity, that are suing it either inadequate protection or, or in some cases, just purely destructive acts that the, the agency is taking on. And the fact that it's taking on, you know, that is that the agency is Notwithstanding some of the good things that they have accomplished in wolf recovery, I mean they have they have reestablished wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains, you know, and that needs to be cheered and and you know acknowledged and recognized as as also part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's legacy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Notwithstanding that, the fact is that the Fish and Wildlife Service has prematurely removed wolves from the endangered species list time and time again, and and then been struck down by the courts. It's promulgated a, a, a regulatory regime of persecution against the Mexican gray wolf that is doing, continues to do immeasurable damage to the Mexican gray wolf's genetic integrity. And it's also been struck down by the courts. And one has to wonder whether an agency that is consistently misapplying the, one of the foundational laws that it operates under, the, the Endangered Species Act, you know, what else is going on? Today, livestock and wolf conflicts still very much exist. If given the chance, wolves will kill a cow. Only, this doesn't happen nearly as often as one might think, and when it does happen, in most cases, there would have been ways to prevent it. So why aren't non-lethal deterrents more widely adopted? Yes, and in fact, last, was it last year, I think it was just last year, the Arizona Cattle Growers Association came out with a study, a survey of their own membership of cattle, cattle growers on the national forest near where there was wolves, <clears throat> excuse me, on the national forest near where there were wolves and, and more remotely and ask them that specific question hmm. about whether it's worth trying to, to protect livestock and get along, coexist or not, or whether the wolves should just be, I mean, I can't remember how they phrased it, but I'm happy to send you a copy of the yeah, study that they published. You know, maybe remind me of via email. 
Yeah. And the, and their their membership and their their people they're like, yeah, no, we don't want to coexist. This is it's very clear. We don't want these animals here. And in fact, it's it's very where it's very easy to get to find livestock owners who use the public lands in in the southwest who are willing to, to decry the presence of the wolves on these on national forests to lament the presence of the wolves to state that the wolves are absolutely unacceptable and sadly i don't know of any livestock owner using the public lands in the southwest who's willing to make a statement otherwise there is undeniably a cultural hatred towards wolves that has been solidified and championed in this country dating back to those settlers in the mid-1800s. Changing such an embedded cultural mindset is no small order. And it's rearing its ugly head today again with the state-by-state legalization of wolf persecution. This anti-wolf mindset came up in my chats with John Vucevic, the biologist whom you heard from in episode one. He points out, rightfully so, that there are both delegitimate objections to wolves rooted in hatred and legitimate ones rooted in livestock conflict that need to be addressed separately in different ways. There won't be any satisfying way to deal with livestock depredation that would make a person then change their mind and say, yeah, I think it's okay to not hunt wolves. And and without beating around the bush and getting straight to the heart of the matter, there's pretty good evidence that a number of people who want to hunt wolves simply hate them. That's it. And, and, and they, they may realize that their hatred of wolves doesn't play very well with the general public as a reason to want to hunt them. So they have to think of other reasons to offer. And, and here it gets complicated because while hatred of wolves might be a bad reason to hunt them and lost livestock might be a good excuse to cover that, while that might all be true, It is the case that if you're a livestock owner and you lost your livestock to cattle, that's a problem that merits some attention. And and so what happens is that there's a legitimate side of all this and and a less legitimate side of all this. And one has to be cognizant of that and basically be managing and, and confronting both sides at the same time. So first off, if a person eats meat, It's impossible not to tie this cultural animosity to the proliferation of the U.S. beef industry, the historical staple of American food that has been allowed to reap in profits year after year without ever having to pay for the environmental and ecological damages it creates. Like many other highly pollutant industries, if the livestock industry had to pay its true cost, including those environmental and ecological damages, it would undoubtedly be smaller. It would be harder to operate at scale and be left to those who choose to do it the right way, with controlled rotational grazing, land stewardship, grain-free feeding, and a prioritization of non-lethal deterrence to protect livestock and wild predators alike, to respect the land and the life that inhabits it, not exploit it. In this world, beef would be an occasional delicacy, not a staple at the dinner table. This can be done, and there's reason to believe it is already underway. In fact, there are many forward-looking and forward-thinking regenerative-focused ranchers that would also champion this change. You know, one of the reasons beef in particular is so important is that it is kind of woven into our national identity and DNA through that story of the American West, right? When we think about the cowboy, when we think about, you know, the expansion of America, beef was there the whole time. And so it has these deeply powerful meanings for people. Now, as far as how to change it, 
I think recognizing the kind of playbook used by industry or ways people naturalize or justify it so that we can counter that. So good example, whenever people, whenever the industry in the 19th century or today saw people criticizing what they do, they turn it into like fears about, about people taking away your hamburgers. So, you know, conservative politicians have said like, oh, liberals are coming for your hamburgers. That's a playbook that dates back to the 1890s. Meatpacker said the same thing. And so seeing that strategy and saying, no, we're not coming for hamburgers, we're reframing how this is produced and perhaps a little bit at the margin or eventually maybe how you relate to it. So, so recognizing the playbook, but I'll raise, I'll raise one other point that I think is important. Okay. So I wrote this book about meat. Um, you know, I, I'll level with, with you and, and everyone, like you're, I'm not making huge amounts of money writing academic books about beef, right? There's not a lot of money currently to be made in attacking the way meat is produced currently. And I think one thing that could change the culture is the emergence of companies that actually make money on a critique of traditional meat production. And that's why I think alternative meats are, are particularly interesting because their marketing goals correspond with a critique of traditional production. Now, I still have concerns. I mean, you could still say that they're very friendly to certain forms of industrial agriculture. So that's a different conversation. But looking at ways in which there can be, A, economic incentives to find a critique could help. And then I think just the longer process of conversations with family members connecting meat production to broader social and economic questions. My answer, you know, I, I guess is just, it's hard, but I think it is of course possible. And you're exactly right. Culture changes over time and it doesn't have to mean what it's always meant. And, and the point of my book is to show and my research that all these decisions are political. There's nothing inevitable about how we produce our food. There were decisions that were made and we can make different ones, even if they're hard. Yet today we find ourselves at an important crossroad. The war on wolves fueled by the livestock industry and its far reaching political and economic machinery is at a tipping point. Before we explore that in our fourth and final episode, we first want to cover wolf reintroduction efforts dating back to the 90s through today. Some successes, some failures, and not nearly enough progress overall. Learning from this is pivotal to establishing a direction and course of action for answering the challenges being posed today from the anti-wolf community. All right, we'll see you next week in episode three of the American War on Wolves, where we will dig in to reintroduction. <laughs>